0: Plenty to go. I'm going to talk about the idea of dealing with sin. And what I want to ask you is this morning, first, what comes to your mind when you hear the word sin? And what comes to our mind when we hear the word sin kind of reveals whether we have a a biblical view of sin or whether we have a a view of sin that is more shaped by the world around us. right? So, for example, how many of us have ordered a dessert that might have been described as sinfully delicious or sinful chocolate decadence. Uh, And what happens when we have this view of sin and when it's used in that way? Sin doesn't become something dreadful. Sin instead becomes something we probably shouldn't do. But we're going to anyway. We, We may regret it later, but right now we're going to savor the moment. And we don't in that moment see it as something altogether evil. Something that destroys families and lives and people by the millions. It's it's instead just an indulgence. And what this really means is sin is no big deal. Now culture... Our culture, our world, trivializes sin in this way. But God's Word does not. The wages of sin is death. But the gracious gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, this verse presents us with a series of choices. There is a a way... Which leads to eternal life. And there is a way which leads to death. There are wages earned. And there is a gift given. There is sin. And there is Jesus. And and all of these are presented as either or. Either we go the way of life. Or we go the way of death. Either we receive a gracious gift or we earn wages. Either we have Jesus or there's sin. It's, it's one or the other. And the last choice, Jesus, sin or Jesus, is the most important. Because what we do when we make that decision determines all of the others. When I choose Jesus, I receive... A gracious, eternal, life-giving gift. But if I choose sin, I earn wages resulting in death. Now this reveals why the cultural view of sin is so dangerous. When we trivialize sin, we begin to believe we can choose sin and still have Jesus. We can still walk the, the path of death, but still end up with life. We can still earn our wages, but receive the gift at the same time. And this is simply not the case. These are all either or options. Today, as we begin a series on dealing with sin, I want to try to help us understand sin. And to help us understand sin, I'm going to ask and answer four questions. What is sin? If sin is this bad, we better know what it is. How does God's Word describe sin? Culture views it one way. God's Word views it another. How does God's Word view it? What are the consequences of sin? And then, if sin is so bad, how can I be saved from sin? The answers to these questions will reveal the deadly danger of sin, so hopefully we'll never trivialize it again. And we'll never make light of it again. Then at the end, I'm going to urge all of us to choose Jesus and His gracious, eternal, life-giving gift. Question one, what is sin? We need to understand what sin is before we can really understand the deadly danger of sin. Now, there are in the Bible two ideas associated with sin, two main ideas. One is that of missing the mark. So with this... Think of a marksman, right? You go to the range, you pull out your rifle, and you shoot. Not like this, you don't shoot with a rifle, but you shoot. And you aim for center mass. You aim for the bullseye. And if you hit the bullseye, you hit the mark. But sometimes you, you hit off over here, or you hit down there, or sometimes you miss the target completely. You you tried, but you missed. That's missing the mark. Romans 3.23 all have sinned and fallen short of God's glorious standards. Maybe you tried, but you fell short. The other idea associated with um, with sin is that of a, a standard we have violated. A trespass. There is a boundary, there is a line, and we have gone on the other side of it. We saw the line, we knew the line, and we crossed it anyway. It was not an accidental. It wasn't we aimed for the mark, but we fell short. It was we intended to miss the target. We intended to shoot off over here. We saw the boundary that said, do not cross. And we said, ain't nobody going to tell me what I can't do. And we crossed the boundary. This is the idea of trespassing. Or a violation of God's standard. But even that begs the question. What is the standard? What is the mark we're aiming for? The Bible says everyone who practices sin practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. Sin is rejecting God's law. And living however we want to live regardless of what God's law says. It is living as though there were no law. It is living as though there were no standard, or at least not one that applied to me. Maybe Joe has a standard, but I don't have to meet that standard. I am lawless, not necessarily like an outlaw lawless. But there is no law that is binding upon me. There are no boundaries for me. I can and shall do whatever I want to do in my life. The law refers to the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments essentially make up God's absolute standard of right and wrong. When we look in the Old Testament, we would see all of the commands that God has given, the law, whether it was the sacrifices or the way they were to live or how they were to sow their field or when they were to let it lie fallow, every law given flowed in one way or another out of the Ten Commandments. When we come to the New Testament, we find the exact same thing. Every command the New Testament says this is how you live or this is how you don't live flows in one way or another out of the Ten Commandments. It is either a direct quoting of the Ten Commandments, don't kill anyone, or it's an application of the Ten Commandments. Don't even hate people in your heart. This is God's Standard, the Ten Commandments. And with sin being being lawless, there are two broad categories of sin. There are sins of commission and sins of omission. Sins of commission is when we do what we know we're not supposed to do. We see the line and we're not supposed to cross it, but we do anyway. That is a sin of commission. Then there's a sin of omission, and a sin of omission is not doing what we know we're supposed to do. We're supposed to pull others back from the line, but we're not going to let them do whatever they want. When we don't do what we know God has said to do, that is a sin of omission. Sin involves our attitudes. Sin involves our actions. Sin involves our reactions. Sin involves our priorities. Sin involves our values. Sin involves our thoughts. Sin involves our motives. And sin involves our speech. There is no area of our life where we cannot in some way violate God's standard. That's why sin is so infecting. That's why sin is so dangerous. It would be one thing if sin was just an action. I did this. That was a sin. My bad. But I don't have to do it. If I think it. I can think in ways that are wickedly sinful. I can speak in ways that are wickedly sinful. I can do the right thing. With wickedly sinful motives. Someone can do things to me and I react to their stressors in wickedly sinful ways. I can prioritize my life in ways that are wickedly sinful. I can value what God despises and that is wickedly sinful. I can just have a wickedly sinful attitude in the way I act and interact with people throughout my day. Sin involves all of life. It is deadly dangerous. Second question, how does God's word describe sin? Culture makes sin an indulgence, no big deal, something you ought not do, but you're going to anyway. But God doesn't. God's word gives us many, and these are just a few, and we'll have to cover these quickly because I have so many of them. Sin is a work of the devil. The one who practices sin is of the devil. We'll talk about that in a minute. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose to destroy the works of the devil. Now, let me just... I don't have time for all the things I want to say about this passage. Sin is a work of the devil because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. Right? He is the inventor of sin. He is the first sinner. Sin is a work of the devil. Now, when people say, well, I can kind of live however I want to, notice the Son of God appeared to destroy the works of the devil. What was the work of the devil specifically? Sin. How can I live as a disciple of Jesus, live for Jesus, live in Jesus, while doing those things he died to destroy? Does it make sense that I can do both at the same time? No, it does not second those who sin are children of the devil right so first john said that those who sin are of the devil and here jesus now i use this passage not the same one again because this is jesus you know jesus mr love your neighbor as you love yourself also said you're of your father the devil and you want to do the desires of your father what are his desires Sin. And so when we do sin, we're of the devil. We are demonstrating we are children of the devil. Those who live in sin demonstrate they are children of the devil. Sin is an abominable thing God hates. The way of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord. Way refers to the the way of life. The way of life Of the sinner. It's an abomination to the Lord. When we see the word abomination. We should think disgusting. We should think something that that gags. Almost something that makes. Kind of like what Jesus said about. I will vomit you out of my mouth. It is that same sort of revulsion. Sin is revolting. And abominable to God. And he hates it. Sin is disgraceful. Righteousness exalts a nation. But sin is a disgrace to any people. We live in a culture where sin is celebrated. They're open and they're honest about their sin. They they celebrate it. They are not ashamed. And yet the Bible, God says, sin is a disgrace to us. To us as people, as individuals, to a nation. Sin is disgraceful. Sin is always against God. David says, against you and you only. I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you're justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. Now, this is a significant passage and idea, um, possibly the most important one of all regarding sin. Now, David wrote this after he had sinned with Bathsheba. You think about that. David sinned with Bathsheba. who all did he sin against? Well, he sinned against his wives. He sinned against Bathsheba. She gets a bad rap because she took up with David, but he was the king. He watched her bathe. He sent for her. She didn't have a lot of choice, necessarily. Sinned against Bathsheba. He he sinned against Bathsheba's husband, Uriah the Hittite, who was not just a, a person in David's kingdom, but he was one of David's mighty men. He was one of the men who devoted his life to defend and fight for David and his kingdom. And David cheated with his wife. Then David had that man murdered. David sinned against his army. You want to know one thing an army needs from its commander-in-chief? Trust. They need to know he's not giving them orders that send them to their death to cover his sins. He sinned against Joab, the general. He made murder Uriah the Hittite. David sinned against Israel itself by not being at war when kings go out to war and by being home living his life of leisure. And yet what David says is he has sinned against God. All sin is ultimately against God. The reason is God is the law giver. And when God gives the law and we violate it, we sin against God. We don't sin against the church. We don't sin against other disciples when we break God's law. We don't sin against Christianity or conservatives or Republicans or Democrats. No, no. When we violate God's standard, we sin against the God who gave the standard. Always, always, all sin is always against God. If we are ever going to understand the deadly danger of sin, we must understand sin is always against God. Sin defiles us. of the heart come evil thoughts, murders, acts of adultery, other immoral sexual acts, thefts, false testimony, slanderous statements. These are the things that defile the person. To eat with unwashed hands does not defile a person. Again, I don't have time to get into all this, but so often we want to focus on external things, how we dress, and music, and so many of those things along those lines. But those are not what defile us. It is the actions of sin which flow from our heart. The idea of defile is being inwardly dirty, inwardly corrupt, or inwardly polluted. It is meant to be a contrast with the outward cleanliness of, Of the religious leaders of washing their hands. What wallowing in mud does to our exterior, sin does to our heart and to our soul. It defiles us. Sin brings God's wrath. For this you know with certainty that no sexually immoral or greedy person, which amounts to an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. See that no one deceives you with empty words. Because of these things, the wrath of God comes on the children of disobedience. Because of these things, the wrath of God comes on the children of disobedience. What are these things? It's the sins listed up above. And again, see that no one deceives you with empty words. What are empty words? Empty words are the words saying, don't worry about sin. Sin is no big deal. God's changed. Things are different. No, no. That word doesn't mean what you've always thought it mean. That word doesn't mean what it says. God didn't mean what He said. That's not a sin. The world is different. God is different. The standards are different. Those are empty words saying sin is not a sin. And we're warned not to be deceived by those people because they will bring the wrath of God upon us as we act upon the things they tell us are not sin but actually are. Sin causes separation and hostility. Although you were previously alienated... And hostile in attitude and engaged in evil deeds. People of Colossae were at one point alienated from God and hostile toward God in their attitude. How was this alienation and hostility demonstrated? By their engagement in evil deeds. Again, God is the law giver. And so when I say, I don't have to follow your law, I'm thumbing my nose at God. That's... It's pretty hostile, right? That alienates me, that separates me from my God. This is all very different than sinfully delicious, isn't it? This is all very different than sinful decadence. and indulgence we shouldn't do, but are going to do. We'll feel bad about it later, but for now, we're going to savor the moment. God's view is very different than the world's view. Now, there are two facts about what we've just talked about that is very difficult for many people to accept. This describes my sin as well as your sin. We we are masters of self-justification. Our hearts are idle factories forever justifying our sin. And so you can do the very same thing I do. And I can say, yes! What we just described is true of your sin, Michael. But now, it's different when it's me. You just don't understand how I was raised. You don't understand the trauma I've experienced. You don't understand the influences I've had in my life. You don't understand. See, God's Word doesn't give us that ability. This is true... Well, everything we just said, it is absolutely true of my sin. Every sin of mine. But it is also true of your sin. Your sin is no more sanctified than that of the worst sinner on the planet. People who who hate God and blaspheme the name of God and live in sin, that describes their sin. But if we who claim to love God and be devoted to Jesus live in sin, it describes our sin as well. There is no difference. Secondly, this describes small and respectable sins as well as bad or shameful sins. Our culture builds a divide between what are small and what are big, what are respectable and what are shameful. But again, God's Word doesn't do that. God's Word just says this is what sin is like. Sins we might consider to be small or respectable, like greed. Is, is greed not a respectable sin in our day? Lust, lying, pride, being judgmental, gossip, outbursts of anger, talking bad about people. When the Bible often in the New Testament it talks about Blaspheming out of our mouth, most of the time it's not talking about blaspheming God, it's talking about blaspheming people, speaking evil against them, speaking bad of them, cussing, profanity, racism. These are sort of considered to be small and acceptable sins often within the church. And then there are the the bigger sins that the church sees, but the culture sees as socially acceptable like abortion or homosexuality or sex outside of marriage. And all of those sins are just as evil, just as much of the devil, signs of children of the devil, just as abominable, just as defiling, just as against God as whatever other sin we might put in that category. All sin fits the categories of what we've just looked at the biblical description of sin reveals the deadly danger of sin third question what are the consequences of sin another way the world's view of sin and god's word's view of sin differs is in the consequences it brings into our life the world would have us believe Sin brings no real consequences unless our sin is specifically against others. You sin against another person, you violate them in some way, there are legitimate consequences that come into your life, but as long as your sin is just between you, all is well in the castle. But God's Word, on the other hand, teaches sin brings severe, dramatic, and negative consequences. God's Word says, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever a person sows, this will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will reap destruction from the flesh. The one who sows the Spirit will reap everlasting life from the Spirit. Sowing to the flesh is exactly the same as living in sin, choosing to live in sin. And sowing to the Spirit is the same as choosing to resist sin, choosing to walk in the Spirit. And each of those has a resulting consequence. And here's the thing that we don't understand sometimes. We choose what we sow, always. It's always our choice. But we don't get to choose what we reap. If we sow to the flesh, we will reap from the flesh. Now, a lot of you guys plant and you do gardens, so you're you're familiar with the idea of farming or Gardening, you don't plant tomatoes and then get upset when when cucumbers grow, do you? That would be silly. If I was out in my backyard screaming about the cucumbers from the tomato seeds I planted, you would think I had lost my ever-loving mind. In the same way, when we sow to the flesh and then are like, "I can't believe I'm having all of this bad things happen in my life because of it," it's just as foolish. The only way we get to choose what we reap is by choosing what we sow. And what we sow guarantees what we will reap. Now, the idea of reaping destruction from the flesh sounds bad, but it's not specific. But the Bible does give us specifics about it. Sin sears our conscience. The Spirit explicitly says, in the latter times, some will fall away from the faith paying attention to deceitful spirits, teachings of demons, by means of hypocrisy of liars, seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron. Now this is an intense passage. It talks about demonically inspired doctrine, people being led astray and their conscience being seared. Each of those is significant. Demonically inspired false doctrine would be any doctrine contradicting what we see in God's Word. Specifically within our message today, doctrines of demons would be the doctrine which says what the God calls a sin is not a sin. And there are doctrines of demons abounding. You go on Google and you Google, is something a sin? There will be millions of results. And there will be some who say, yes, of course, here's why. But tragically, there will be hundreds of thousands of responses saying, no, no, the church has... Tragically misunderstood Scripture forever. No, that was never a sin. That's never what it meant. The times have changed and you can't accept that and you can't believe that. Now, some of these articles saying it's not a sin, some of them will come from atheists and agnostics and people who just reject Christianity. But many of them will come from people who pastor churches, teach at seminaries, are outspoken social media influencers and theoretically Christians. So the question is, why are they saying these things are not sin when God's Word says it is? Have they reached a a level of sanctification the rest of us have yet to reach and the Holy Spirit showed them something new that nobody else has ever known? No. Why do they say these things? Because they are paying attention to doctrines of demons. They are being led astray By the doctrines of demons. Then there is the searing of the conscience. To understand the searing of the conscience, we have to understand what the conscience is from God's word. According to Romans 2, 14 and 15, the conscience is something God has placed within us to help us know right from wrong. The conscience is the part of our being God uses to convict us of sin and wrong. So how how does someone sear their conscience? They go to do what the Bible says is wrong. And they feel that... You ever done something, you knew it was wrong, and you felt that your conscience was, was struck at that moment? When we push through, and we do it anyway, we we begin the process of searing our conscience. Or if we feel, like there's something I should do, I should say this, I should act this way, I should do this, and then we, we don't. And we... Our conscience we feel we call it having a, a guilty conscience. Well that is actually very often from God seeking to guide us along the right way of life. And when we continually violate our conscience, what happens is at first we we kind of numb it. Right? Searing doesn't happen all at once. Otherwise we would all be hopelessly in this condition. Instead, what happens is we, we numb it. We ignore our conscience and we ignore our conscience and we ignore our conscience and, and its speaking and its guiding is numbed. It's not quite as loud. It's not quite as hard. We don't feel quite as guilty. We're getting used to our sin. We're getting used to violating it. But then if we keep on and we keep on, there comes a point to where we don't feel it at all. There is no, I did wrong. I should have done this instead, and that doesn't mean that we have done it enough. God has given in and been like, oh, "You're going to do that. You go be happy." It's not what happened. Instead, what's happened is we have seared our conscience. We have made it so that we are living 1 Corinthians four one and two. Sin. It mars that part of us that God gave us to help us live right, to do His will. The more we live in sin, the more it mars our conscience until eventually, our conscience can be seared. And we've probably all, whether seen people on TV who have done horrific things, and they feel no guilt, no remorse. They they rejoice and they celebrate their sin. How did they get to that place? This This is how they got to that place. This is how they celebrate their sin and encourage others to do it. This is how they are not able to blush over their sin any longer. They have seared their conscience by ignoring it over and over and over again. Sin enslaves us. Proverbs says, His own wrongdoings will entrap the wicked. He will be held by the ropes of his sin. He will die for his lack of instruction. The greatness of his foolishness. He will go astray. Sin leads to more sin. It just does. Sin promises freedom, but it delivers captivity. The idea of being held in the ropes of sin, it, it kind of pictures getting caught and tangled. When I was in Germany, we were in a place called Vilflicken, and there was kind of, we called them wait-a-minute vines, and they were just vines through the woods, and if you got in the midst of them, And there was just all these vines. If you tried to keep pushing through, if you were really a big, strong baa, you probably could. But if you weren't and you got caught, the more you wrestled, the more they entangled around your gear and around your arms and around your neck and around your helmet and around your stuff. And, And you were just the more you struggled, the more you entangled, the harder it was to get cut free of them. And that's what sin is. The more we do sin thinking this is freedom. This is what I've always wanted. This is my best life yet. All it does is further wrap us. Further entwine us. Further hold us hostage until we are destroyed. Which is the last part. Sin earns a wage. The wages of sin is death. Every sin makes every, makes the person who committed it deserving of death. Every sin. The punishment for sinning against an infinitely holy God is not merely physical death or even spiritual death. It is eternal death. It is to be cast into the lake of fire for all of eternity. Revelation 20 and 14 refers to this as the second death. The horrors of hell Show us the terrible wrath of God against sin. And this is the earned wage of sin. I'll sum up the danger of sin with a picture. This is actually one picture, but I've got it in two parts. This is what sin promises. And this is what sin delivers. Sin promises a vacation on the beach. And sin delivers death and shame and destruction. Always. The deadly danger of sin is seen in the consequences of sin. So that brings to the last question. How can we be saved from sin? Salvation from sin comes only through Jesus. Because of what He has done for us on the cross. Prophecy of Jesus from Isaiah 53 says it was for our sicknesses that He bore, our pains He carried. Yet we assumed that He had been afflicted, struck down by God and humiliated. But instead He was pierced for our offenses. He was crushed for our wrongdoings. The punishment for our well-being was laid upon Him. And by His wounds we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned into his own way. But the Lord has caused The wrongdoing of us all to fall on Him. Again, it's a passage we don't have time to get into. Take some time this week. Read Isaiah 52, verse 13 through 53, 12. Slowly meditate upon it. Think about what Jesus did. But Jesus died for our sins. He was afflicted. He was struck down. He was humiliated. He was pierced. He was crushed. He was punished. And he was wounded. This was all done for sin, but not his sin. Our sin. Jesus had done nothing wrong. It was because of your sin and my sin. He was afflicted and struck down and humiliated. He was pierced for our wrongdoings. He was crushed for our sins. He was punished for our well-being. He was wounded for our healing. Our wrongdoings fell to him. Jesus suffered for sin so that we wouldn't have to suffer for sin. Jesus suffered the work of devil, the work of the devil we had done so we could become the children of God. Jesus suffered the abominable thing God hates that we had done so we could experience the love of God in our lives. Jesus took our disgrace so we could receive God's approval. Jesus took God's wrath for our sin so we could have God's peace and God's acceptance. Jesus took our defilement so we could be made the righteousness of God in Him. Jesus was crucified for what? Enslaves us so He could set us free and we would be free indeed. Jesus died so we would have eternal life. But this requires us to choose Him. This is our choice. This is what we must do. Because this choice is before us. Right now, each of us has the choice of sin or Jesus. It cannot be sin and Jesus. It can't be. In order to turn from our sin, in order to receive Jesus, to choose Him, we have to turn from our sin. We have to let go of our sin and grab onto Him, to grab onto the cross. And this is your choice. You are the only one who can make that choice for you. No one else can. And it is an intentional decision. Listen, you say, well, I don't know, I think. Do you want to risk eternity on, I think I'll probably be okay. You must make the intentional decision to come to Jesus, to choose Him. Listen, I'll say this and I'll close. People do not drift to heaven. Do not go along the course of this world, die and wake up in glory. That's not what happens. People do not live this life and then be surprised by the fact they get to go to heaven. The Bible does tell there are people who are surprised. But it's not those who go to heaven. The surprise is in those who say, Lord, Lord. And He says, depart from me. I never knew you. We must be sure. We must be certain. We can be sure. We can be certain. We must be Choose Jesus. So you must make a choice. You may know up here all of these things I just said. You may in some ways nominally affirm them. Yeah, that's probably right. There may be within you a desire. I do want to be saved. I don't want to experience all of that. I I don't want that. I, I want Jesus. So the mind knows, the heart desires... But the will has the final choice. The will makes the decision. You must choose Jesus. So let's stand. Sorry, our musicians come forward. I know I didn't prepare them for this. We're going to have a, just a, a short time of invitation. We're not going to have 300 verses of just as I am. But we are going to have a time to respond. You can respond at the altars. You can respond where you are. Where you are makes no difference. It's what you do in this moment. Every one of us in this moment today is going to choose Jesus or sin. I know what I'm going to choose. What choice... Are you going to make? I'll pray and then we'll open the altars up. Our Father, we love You today. You are great and glorious. We thank You for Your Word and the guidance it gives us about life. Father, we don't have to wonder about sin and what it is and how bad it is and what are the consequences or even how to be saved from it. Your Word has spelled it out clearly to us. Today, Oh God, as we have heard Your Word, we have seen it on the screen. Let it take root in our hearts. Help us to see this choice clearly before us. Help us to understand it is either or. And in this day, calls us to choose Jesus. Let us see Him crucified and risen, hands outstretched, saying, Come in to me all you who labor and are heavy laden. And I will give you rest. Oh, Father, let us flee to Jesus and save ourselves from this corrupt generation. Work today. Have your way in all of our hearts, we ask in Christ's name and for his sake.